Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the writer Julian Sancton, whose extraordinary new book is called Madhouse at the End of the Earth, The Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Night. And it's one of those wonderfully resonant stories in which people with beards get an awful lot of ice in them. Julian, tell me a story about the Belgica, because I had never heard of it, and we know about the Erebus, and we know about the Terror, and we know about the Northwest Passage. And we, this is, it seems to have sort of slipped to one side of exploring history, hasn't it? Yeah, and, and uh, it's surprising, because it was the expedition that kicked off the so-called heroic age of Antarctic exploration. I think without the uh, the expedition of the Belgica, commanded by the Belgian sailor and uh, naval lieutenant Adrien de Gerlache, there might not have been... I mean, certainly everybody was racing to the Antarctic, but the nature of Antarctic exploration would have been different because there were a lot of lessons learned, both of what to do and and, and probably more crucially of what not to do. I was surprised also that uh, it hadn't been written about more extensively, and uh, which is why when I when I first heard about it, I thought that you know I, there must be a book about this. I'd read a uh, an article in the New Yorker about. NASA's plans for manned missions to Mars and uh, how they were studying the effects of confinement and isolation in extreme environments uh, on astronauts. And uh, this is how I heard of the Belgica, because it began in classic New Yorker magazine fashion by backing into the story and uh, writing three paragraphs about the Belgica expedition, which, as it happens, is is still imparting lessons to people who are designing space travel because of, again, the, the what went wrong and, and what went right. And so in those three paragraphs, the story managed to bring an image of people going insane in the Antarctic. And that was, for me, that was just such a, an irresistible, almost horror movie premise. It's something like out of Edgar Allan Poe or out of uh, Coleridge, you know, the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And then the fact that uh, one of the heroes of the story was a man who later would be just maligned and turned as seen as one of the great hucksters of American history, Frederick Cook, that such an anti-hero would turn out to be the hero of this expedition to the extent that there was one, I found so cinematic. And so I, I called a friend of mine who's a screenwriter out in L.A. and I said, uh, you know, this is your next movie. It's ready-made for uh, for a big hit. And um, he says, well, you know, in Hollywood, people don't make movies that aren't based on anything anymore. It's got to be based on some kind of IP. So maybe if there were a book. And uh, so I, I looked and I was not a particularly a, uh, you know, I knew about Shackleton. I knew about, you know, what you, the, the ex- expeditions you mentioned, but I didn't know about this one. And so I looked and sure enough, there, there wasn't a book for the, certainly not in English or for the, for the general reader about the Belgica. It was maybe at best one chapter in stories about Roald Amundsen as a sort of a, an origin myth for Roald Amundsen, but, but never in its own right. And it's just such a fascinating story. Okay, well, can you start to ease into the story by sort of setting the scene? I mean, one of the things that's fascinating to me is that period of time, you know, not more than a century and a half ago, when there were places on the earth where we simply didn't know what the hell was there. Yeah. And that seems to be really somehow behind it. Yeah, yeah. Well, in in 1895, so this expedition left in in 1897 from Antwerp. And in 1895, there was a uh, convention of all of the major geographical societies of the Western world. And it was decided at that gathering that the most urgent priority of uh, geographical societies and of, uh, of exploration 
was the exploration of the Antarctic, which, as you say, was a, a, essentially a void at the bottom of world maps at that time. There were a few sketchy coastlines that had been charted, but beyond that, it wasn't even known whether it was a continent or whether, like the Arctic, it was a, a vast ocean of ice with, with a few scatterings of land around it. It was uh, the ultimate geographical mystery. And it's remarkable that at the turn of the 20th century, such a, an area the size of, uh, of, of North America, which is the Antarctic and the surrounding waters, was largely unknown. So it, this had been pronounced as the, the, the great priority of exploration. And the, the, the man who decided to heed that call was unexpectedly a rather inexperienced Belgian naval commander, the, the man I mentioned, Adrien de Jalache. And it was unexpected, not just because uh, he was inexperienced, but because Belgium did not really have a maritime tradition to speak of. The only thing akin to exploration that they had done was the seizing of the Congo at the hands of Le Leopold II, who treated it as, as his uh, personal fiefdom and, and, and uh, ruled tyrannically over it. So the, there was no, no obvious connection between Belgium and seafaring exploration, or certainly not uh, between Belgium and Antarctica. And um, your sort of principal protagonist, the commander of the ship, he, I mean, what animated him, what actuated him? Because, it, you know, he does make it a scientific expedition, and there's, I can't remember who it is you quote, but there's one of the epigraphs yeah. has somebody saying, worse the effect of... Mallory. It's Mallory, yes. Yeah, Mallory. It was, it was uh, the famous quote from Mallory is somebody asked him, why do you want to climb Mount Everest? And he said, because it's there. That was from a New York Times article, and I quoted from later on in the article... What I thought was was even more relevant is when he says, you know, he, that expedition was also justified as a scientific one. And uh, he said, he, he admitted, sometimes science is the excuse for exploration. I think it is rarely the reason. I put that there because it seems to perfectly describe uh, de Jalache's motivations. He understood at that time that ac academia could excite the uh, the public, it could justify expeditions, it could raise funds for expeditions, and it, it was a time in the 19th century where after having conquered much of the world, the, the Western powers were now, were now competing to understand it. Um, and so s explorers were just as likely to be scientists like or naturalists like Darwin or Alexander von Humboldt earlier in the century as they were to be missionaries or soldiers or merchants or of governments. And so... Uh, de Jalache was not a scientist himself. He was a, uh, an intelligent man and, a, and an educated man, so he might have been curious about it. But he was smart enough to understand that this needed to be designed as a serious scientific ex expedition in order to justify the mission. But I think at the heart, it was certainly a romantic endeavor. This was not motivated by his desire to understand the you know mate, mating cycles of penguins so much as it was for him to sort of relive the adventure stories that he res read as a child. And the way the expedition came together, which you describe, it's incredibly sort of scrappy, isn't it? I mean, he's pulling together people from here and there, and half of them are incompetent, and half of them can't... Yeah, yeah. no, <laughs> if he had had his, his... He wasn't a nationalist by any, any stretch, but he understood that in order to raise the funds that he needed, the best chance of doing that would be to present it as a national Belgian expedition. And yet, for all the excitement that there was at the beginning of this within Belgium, he was not able to assemble a fully Belgian crew. As I mentioned, there weren't that many Belgian sailors to speak of, and those that there were were more likely to seek their fortune in the Congo, uh, in the river system there, 
And the others, whoever would accept an assignment like this, were not the most reliable disciplined bunch. They were like a, a notch below pirates. So he had to fill out the ranks with more experienced sailors, and uh, he had bought the Belgica uh, in Norway. Uh, the first time he had had any experience of navigation in the ice was in a, in a aboard a whaling expedition in Norway. And uh, it was then that he saw the Belgica and, and sort of fell in love with it. It was the runt of the Norwegian whaling fleet, a small scrappy ship, as scrappy as the sailors that would populate it. But um, he fell in love, and so he eventually bought it. But in order to, to man this ship, half of the crew was Belgian, half of it was Norwegian. And the first mate, this was one of his most momentous and one of his rare, very very good decisions. The first mate was Roald Amundsen, who at 26 was also pretty green, but it was clear to everyone, including to the Belgian consul in Sandefjord, Norway, that uh, who insisted that De Gerlache take him, it was pretty clear that he was destined to great things. He had already been fashioning himself as a modern-day Viking, and uh, just the, the his aura and his physical stature and his determination and his skill had already made his reputation as as somebody who was who was destined to greatness, and he believed that more than anyone. I mean, one of the sort of almost running jokes of this quite grim story yeah. is that the worse it gets kind of the happier Amundsen is. You know, everybody else is like, shit, this is all going wrong. Yeah. And Amundsen's always, you know, I'm getting frostbite in my toes. Why don't I go yeah. for a walk to the top of that hill? Yeah, this yeah. is incredible. I, w- I hope I get it in my fingers now. From the beginning, in his autobiography, he writes about the fact that what motivated him to pursue a life of polar exploration was the story of John Franklin, who was famously one of the, led one of the most catastrophic expeditions to the uh, Arctic and uh, was responsible for, well, I don't I, I don't know how much you can blame him, but in any case, he suffered tremendously and uh, died along with 130 of, uh, of his men uh, when the terror and the Erebus were crushed in the ice of the Canadian Arctic. And so Amundsen took from this, he didn't see this as a cautionary tale, he saw it as inspiration. He said, uh, what I admired most was the suffering and I sought to emulate it. I think in his mind, it was partly masochism but partly he's just it's another form another more ascetic form of the passion that drove the Gerlache he equated suffering with accomplishment that he was with progress not that he sought it for its own sake necessarily but he thought that if in order to get somewhere you needed to suffer yes I mean that that said you you put it very well that says of a slightly different version of the same thing that you know Dash has this kind of romantic attraction to exploration Amundsen you know, something similar. And then there's your third man, Cook, your compatriot. Yes. Who also sort of effectively, like Amundsen, kind of writes in and says, oh, you know, can I come? Yeah, and it was it was uh, pure accident, or rather pure luck, uh, that de Gerlache, or rather, luck is the wrong word. It was out of desperation. He had no other choice by that point because he had had three doctors accept a, uh, an assignment on the Belgica and then... Uh, one was kicked out because he, uh, his Dijerlache's father thought that this guy was essentially a Trojan horse for the Royal Belgian Geographic Society and that he would take control of the expedition. And then two other doctors begged off at the last moment, I think because they got cold feet, but they made up some excuse about how he, his sister was sick and he needed to take care of her. And this was the day of the departure. And so it was lucky in the sense that they left without a doctor. They left for the Antarctic without a doctor you know, which was absolutely demented. What was lucky was that the first of many problems that would befall the Belgica happened that night when there was engine trouble and they had to go back to Belgium. 
And while the ship was being repaired, Dujerlash answered a telegram that he had gotten from Cook, an application from this unknown or not unknown, he, but sort of, a, it was a cold call. At this stage, he was essentially a kind of family doctor. And he was a family was doctor. Okay. He had been on a bunch of Arctic expeditions and had also, as a sideline to his medical practice, Cook also had done a series of lectures that were managed by the same impresario that managed tours for P.T. Barnum and uh, uh, Henry Morton Stanley and even a young Winston Churchill. And so Cook was almost more of a showman than, than anything. And he would talk about his Arctic explorations, his time am- among the Inuit. And, and more importantly, he would talk about his plans for an Antarctic expedition, something that as much as he trumpeted the possibility of finding gold and diamonds and uh, in, in the Antarctic, as much as he teased the possibility of meeting native Antarctic people and exaggerated and lied and, you know, he was an irresistible showman, but he was uh, not necessarily particularly committed to the truth. And so as much as he, as he did that, he was never able to get his Am- Antarctic expedition off the ground. And when he heard in a newspaper that Dejerlash was about to embark for the Antarctic, he telegraphed him and said, I'm ready to command. <laughs> I don't know why he said this, but he said, I've got 15 Eskimo dogs and I'm ready to command and to join the Belgica. And so Dejerlash had I don't know whether he knew of Cook's unreliable reputation or whether he just thought, you know, I don't need another foreign crew member or foreign person on this ship. I'm already being criticized enough for this not being Belgian enough. And so he dismissed it. But when he had come back uh, for the repairs, he had no other choice. It was, you know, this is a sign. I was about to leave with no doctor. And now I've got a chance to have a doctor, which is probably the most essential role or certainly one of the most essential roles aboard an expedition to the most remote and hostile environment on Earth. And so he said, yes, join us in Rio. Yeah. And then pick him up. Yeah. And off they go. And even before they've got to the Antarctic, they're making what seem to be these kind of rookie errors. You know, they lose weeks to sort of running aground randomly, don't they? I mean, some of them were not of their own making. The running aground, you know, they were navigating, yes, by low light in the Beagle Channel in Tierra del Fuego. And, uh, but I think they were also relying on inaccurate charts. So somewhat of a rookie mistake, but, but understandable. And it was miraculous that they were able to, uh, with the help of Fuegian natives, uh, were able to uh, get the, the ship back afloat. But some were, uh, were, were a product of Jorlache's shortcomings as a leader. There was, a, as I mentioned, the Belgians were an undisciplined bunch the crew, not the, not the officers who were extremely competent and dedicated, but the crew had several chaos agents among them. And their indiscipline was exacerbated by the uh, ready availability of alcohol in Punta Arenas. And after three days of, of them just ignoring orders and going to town and painting it red, mutiny was afoot. Dijalash's authority had, had entirely broken down. At one point, he was confronted by one of these men who shook him down for money, <laughs> drinking money, and when he came back, Dujalash wanted to uh, reprimand him, but the guy basically took a gun to Dujalash's cabin, and it was an absolutely critical moment. Dujalash was able to summon the help of the uh, Chilean port authority and uh, had, had had to call for help, which I don't know if that reinforced his leadership or if that uh, undermined it even more, but it was very possible that, very likely, uh, that the expedition would not even have reached Antarctica. Now, when they fi- finally make it, out towards the Antarctic, there's, you know, I mean, th- this is a story in some ways of a heroic failure, isn't it? 
Yes, in a way, although I think, uh, I don't want to give away too much, but the fact that I had diaries to draw from that not everybody died, the scientific bounty that they came back with was so voluminous that it took 40 years to sort through. So I wouldn't say that it was it was a failure in that sense. It was a failure in the sense that one of the main aims of the expedition was to reach the South Magnetic Pole. And because of the delays that we've discussed in South America, the grounding, the near mutiny, because of the fact that de Gerlache had indulged his scientists in the Antarctic Peninsula and had spent you know, two crucial weeks charting this previously undiscovered strait along the peninsula, because of all those delays, he set off for the other side of the Antarctic, where the magnetic pole was supposed to be, far too late. By the time he would have gotten there, the winter ice would have set in and uh, staved off any attempt to get to the coast of Victoria Land. And so he was in a position where he was already worried about what the Belgian press was saying about the international makeup of the expedition, the fact that it wasn't exclusively Belgian. And he was very worried about having nothing to show for the first season of the expedition. So he's skirting the pack ice in the Bellinghausen Sea, and a storm in late February breaks up the pack ice, which had seemed impenetrable until that point. And it opened up leads, avenues to the south. Dijerlash was at this critical juncture where he thought, either I go home empty-handed and risk not being able to achieve my aims, or I try my luck and see if I can get as far south as I can through this lead. And if I get caught, if the ice, as the very, the very high likelihood that we will get caught will also ensure that we will become the first men to endure an Antarctic winter. And he must have known that the stories of expeditions that go well rarely are written about. You know, the, you mentioned the Erebus. Before the famous and um, catastrophic end of the Erebus and the Terror, the ships had been uh, led by James Clark Ross, and who had discovered Victoria Land aboard them. And it was an expedition that had gone with nary a hitch. It had gone very well. He was a very able, capable commander. And he had trouble getting written about when he came home. Because uh, there, there was this notion that if there was no bloodshed, even the, the Gazette, which was the Admiralty's publication, was reluctant to write about it. And so I think de Jolash also knew that if, even if he didn't come home with a record or the attainment of the South Magnetic Pole, he would come home with a story, which would be as, as valuable as any bounty he could get. But he didn't make this decision completely in the open. I mean, in a way, the sort of moral turning point of this book. Everyone was against it. And so that is the moral turning point. That is, it was a, um, he, he managed to secure an agreement between him and the captain, Georges Lequint, who was very loyal and who probably understood the, the, uh, the calculation and also uh, was driven by his own uh, curiosity to go as far south as possible. In, in that sense, uh, they also uh, aligned with Amundsen, this idea that, that accomplishment is, uh, comes with suffering. But the scientists were petrified. And rightly so. They had not signed on to this. It was the, Nobody had planned to spend a winter in the Antarctic. And they're kind of lying to the crew at this stage, aren't they? They're they were not only lying to the crew, they were falsifying the coordinates and giving them the sense that even once they'd been stuck uh, and everybody thought that they were in prison for the rest of the, the winter and they were they turned out to be right, Dujerlash kept the fires going and uh, 
and telling them that at, as soon as a lead would open up, they would head north and gave them the good news that the pack was drifting north. And in fact, those were falsified, th- those uh, coordinates. And, and in fact, if he kept the engines running, it was only in order to, to go for farther south. And it's remarkable because at some point they would have figured it out. You know, <laughs> they, they would have known. Surely enough, they did. So imprisonment in the ice definitely started off on the wrong foot. And the fact that it wasn't intentional, I think, was a, a crucial factor in why it had such a profound psychological effect on the men. They felt uh, that this, they felt not only betrayed, but surprised and helpless. Yeah. And uh, tell me a bit about the psychological effects, because, you know, the kind of heart of the book, you know, as the title says, is it's to do with the business of being trapped in this place. I mean, they weren't always cold because they they were sort of inside the ship, but, you know, they're in complete darkness for three or four months. And And even being inside the ship had its own psychological consequences, you know, confinement, seeing the same faces sitting across from you day after day. Uh, the feeling of claustrophobia, the men started to suffer not only physically as scurvy took hold of them after, you know, three months uh, of nutritional deficiencies, scurvy and, and likely beriberi disease and another vitamin deficiency, but mentally as well, they started showing signs of confusion, of, of vertigo, of hostility and, uh, de- and deep depression. This is where Cook shined because even though he was a bit of a, the, the doctor, Frederick Cook, even though he was a bit of a, um, uh, he, he had, let's say, con artist tendencies, he was also a, an extremely empathetic man. And he conducted regular psychological surveys of the men, not, you know, of, of officers and, and crew alike, and gave them equal attention. And this is something that also has inspired future expedition leaders. And, um, both in the Antarctic and, and, and in, uh, in uh, space, space exploration have, have taken inspiration from this because he understood that uh, the psychological factor, how, how crucial that was. And he, he was alarmed by the shipwide decline in mental health. So he associated it, and, and now we've, we see rightly, with the uh, disappearance of the sun for almost two months it was of total darkness. And uh, having spent time among the Inuit, he had, he had possibly misinterpreted some of their folklore and uh, some of their, their uh, sense of metaphysics. But he believed from that experience that the sun is as essential to human life as it is to plant life and that, this, that the human body can store sunlight, which is a, a, a uh, dubious notion. But... Because of that, he in- invented light therapy aboard. Because he couldn't bring the Belgica to the sun, he brought the sun in some form to the Belgica by having the, the men stand naked in front of a, um, a roaring fire uh, for uh, hours at a time or for an hour, several hours in a day. And sure enough, it, it did have, seem to have some beneficial effect on their uh, psyche, on their morale. And um, whether that is... And, and that, uh, he's been credited with pioneering phototherapy. But whether whether he was able, the, the, the fire uh, that they were saying in front of was able to emit the uh, full spectrum light that is now used for phototherapy is doubtful. However, even if it was just a placebo effect, that's also some, a, a, a remarkable accomplishment that he was able to, to, to instill uh, an atmosphere of high spirits uh, despite the gloom that was surrounding the ship. Yeah, also, he seems to have saved a lot of people by making them all eat penguin. He did. There was also a great intuition of his, uh, and also inspired by the Inuit. And I think the fact that uh, this is something that makes him 
such a, uh, a remarkable figure is that uh, he was trained in uh, Western medicine, and yet he f- he repeatedly found more inspiration from his time among the indigenous people of the of the Arctic in polar matters specifically than he did uh, from his education. And so, as you mentioned, he forced his shipmates to eat the fresh meat of penguins and seals. It was obvious to him that the men were suffering from scurvy. And he had noticed among his in his time in Greenland that the Inuit, uh, despite eating almost exclusively uh, fresh game, did not seem to suffer from scurvy. Uh, they had no access to fresh fruits and vegetables for uh, much of the year, if ever. And uh, yet they, they didn't show symptoms of scurvy. And so partly because there was no other uh, you know, source of fresh food, but partly out of this notion that uh, the, the Inuit were, were onto something, he forced his shipmates to eat penguin and seal. And surely, surely enough, those who uh, took his advice and ate it as raw as possible Amundsen obviously loved it. Of course, uh, right. Of course, Amundsen um, loved it. You know, uh, anyway, they 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 did uh, they did better, and they saw as surely as water douses fire, the vitamin C in fresh meat, though there isn't much of it, there is some of it, was it started to reverse the effects of scurvy. It is funny, as you mentioned, the meat of uh, penguins to most people, to almost everybody on board, was one of the most revolting things they'd ever eaten, especially because. Since the cook had been kicked off in Punta Arenas, he was one of the mutineers. The duties, kitchen duties, were entrusted to Dijalash's cabin boy, uh, who was eager, but an extremely incompetent cook. And more than that, he was ambitious. So he tried to make these elaborate meals and, involving penguin meat, and they were just inedible. But yes, Amundsen, as we mentioned, equated suffering with accomplishment. And in his diary, he says, this is the best meat you could possibly hope for. It's to the point where suffering is... No longer even suffering because it, it because he sees it as as some great empowering character building uh, thing. It he associates it with pleasure. So yeah, he he loves the steaks and he eats them raw and probably relished the expression of disgust on his shipmate's face as he guzzled, guzzled them down. Yeah, it's a fascinating character, Robinson. Can you? T- t- I mean, there's so much. I mean, I think what what makes this book so gripping is is the wealth of human detail. It's really well documented. I mean, where did you find all this stuff? What was available? Because we got cartoons, we got photographs, we've got diaries. Did they sort of all bring them back and lodge them with a museum or something? Um, no, no. You know, I thought that one of the reasons the story hadn't been told is because there wasn't enough of a historical record or there, there weren't enough primary sources. And I was disabused of that notion pretty quickly. Of the 19 men who left South America for the Antarctic, aboard the Belgica, about a dozen had kept some kind of day-to-day record. And so that was, it was a historian's dream. You can have, use as many secondary sources as you want, but when you're writing about a ship that's isolated, that has no communication with the outer world, you're limited to what those men were writing. And I had I had a bounty to uh, of, of historical sources to draw from. Some, obviously, if it was only Cook, I wouldn't have been able to believe any of it. But because I was able to triangulate between Cook and Amundsen and Dujerlash and... Uh, and uh, some of the crew members that created this multi-perspective, you know, kind of it was kind of an, a Rashomon type exercise to try to figure out who was, tell, you know, who had the closest version to the truth. But no, they were they were. Um, I found them all over the place. You mentioned the cartoons; those were uh, drawn by one of my favorite characters on this expedition, the Romanian naturalist uh, Emil Rakovica, and uh, they are kept by uh, at the Norwegian. Uh, National Library in Oslo, 
And uh, as are the original version of Amundsen's diaries. I relied on a translation for that, but um, but I was I did translate a few others, uh, and other Norwegian sources. There there were there were re- reports by crew members that were there were there were also diaries from one of the one of the crew members who died. Um, that somebody just told me I heard. I mean, this was also in a, a dream. I heard you were you're researching the Belgica. You know, this has never been consulted before, and we just uh, found this in our archives. But uh, could you use this? And it was the yeah, it was he's one of one of my um, one of the most touching stories of uh, the story of the death of this young beloved crew member. And this uh, makes it even more heartbreaking. This Danko, because there was two, no, not no, no. He was Belgian. He was Belgian. He didn't keep. He, he, if he did keep a diary, uh, I, I didn't find it. But no, this is Vinka who um, suffered a, a, a horrible accident before they even reached. Antarctica, but you you know you through his diaries uh, you read his you, it's it's easy for the stories of crew members to be minimized uh, and to you know typically the the officers are the ones whose accounts are are remembered and uh, but he had such a lovely poetic voice he he was a fan of uh, Ibsen uh, he was he was a fan of Beethoven he equated the 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 uh, for him the music of tempests the uh, screeching of the uh, of the wind in the rigging. And the uh, this the roar of the the ocean against the ship reminded him of the treble in the bass of Beethoven sonatas, and so you know this these are things you read in these diaries, and these men come alive, and it just makes their fates uh, so much more poignant. Did you travel? I mean, obviously, the last year and a half it hasn't really been possible, but did you travel down to the Antarctic to sort of try and get a sense of the atmosphere? I did. Uh, I went there in um, December twenty eighteen, so that's the Austral summer. It was a glorious trip i just i went right i was lucky enough that the weather which is always unreliable permitted us to get to the exact stretch of the antarctic peninsula that that is named after Dijerlash, that that he and his men explored over those two blissful weeks before before the ice set in, in the first few weeks of 1898 i had a friend who was an editor that i a magazine editor here that i i really uh respect and I told him that I was planning on going to Antarctica for this book, Antarctica for this book. And he said, well, why? Why don't you just rely on the diaries? This isn't a travelogue. You're not writing in the first person. You know, he accused me of trying to just write off a business trip to the Antarctic. And he was partly right. But it was it was mostly that I, I figured in order to get the novelistic detail that I was striving for, if I were just to rely on those diaries, I would have misunderstood the Antarctic. I would have, you know, I would have filled in the picture myself uh, with with my imagination and uh, I'm no novelist, so I, I wanted to see and hear and smell it for myself. And I was I was baffled by the the otherworldly, almost alien quality of this land. Also, uh, I was I was struck. I was expecting that sort of clear, crystalline Antarctic air, and that it would just be so refreshing. And in fact, what struck me was uh, uh, much of the time the the overwhelming stench of penguin rookeries, which uh, reminded me of you know you know, a dumpster full of seafood on a hot day. But, but, and, and then, you know, I was, once I'd been there, I was able to uh, recognize these, these descriptions and, and they became familiar to me. And as, as did the land itself, when I was, uh, uh, when we were steaming down the Gerla Strait, these, you know, vista after vista reminded me of Frederick Cook's photographs, which were beautiful. Um, but it looked like the land hadn't changed at all in 120 years. Uh, save for the fact that, you know, I, if I had been just relying on the photos, I would have been describing an environment in black and white. And, and this was just a, 
far more polychromatic from you know enchanting spectrums of blues and the uh, you know the pops of color from the the red of of uh, gentoo penguins beaks to the yellow and green of the lichen but yeah no but but one thing that that did strike me during that trip was that as much as it seems like the land has been untouched since i went on a, a few outings with some scientists uh, who had uh, come along with us and they were studying the uh, the the water of the Gerlach Strait for salinity and phytoplankton populations, and uh, even you know the, what they found was was sobering that uh, the the increased flow of meltwater from the glaciers is now reducing the salinity of the water there, which is changing the composition of the phytoplankton, uh, which means that the the kind of phytoplankton that the krill like to eat is now thriving elsewhere, which means that the krill are thriving elsewhere, which means that uh, they're going to drag likely the penguins that feed on them and the seals that feed on them and the whales, you know, the, the, the entire ecosystem is now in, in flux and it's, it's absolutely alarming. Um, speaking of flux, one of the things that probably people who don't, you know, know the terrain, would think, right, there's a ship trapped in ice. It's just, you know, like a big lump of ice. But the ice is so much a kind of character in the story and it's moving constantly, isn't it? Yeah, it's... um, Rakovica, the cartoonist I mentioned, naturalist, the Romanian naturalist, describes it beautifully as a parody of terra firma. It's this idea that it looks very much like a desert, like a... uh, you know, it almost looks like the the distant icebergs look like uh, the the as reassuring as the spires of nearby towns, and yet what appears to be land and is composed entirely of water is uh, unbelievably treacherous. Uh, you could, uh, w- you know, one day you could, if you leave the ship and stray far enough to the point where you don't see it anymore, that could be deadly because you uh, the, everything could have shifted in the meantime and you would likely not find it uh, again. It would have drifted away. Or um, what appears to be solid ground could actually be slush covered in snow. And this happened to Dejulash when he was walking. He he didn't know how to swim. One of these, it always baffles me when I hear of sailors who don't know how to swim, almost as out of superstition. But uh, at one point he, um, he he had too much faith in the solidity of the ground and fell straight through, and Cook snatched him by his, his uh, coat collar and saved him from a, 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 a frigid bath when it was uh, almost 30, minus 30 outside. So, And yet it deceived in other ways. I mean, it, not only is, is the ice constantly moving, not only is it, is, is it uh, the pressure, all, a, a constant threat, uh, gripping the ship and squeezing it, it, pressure ridges shooting out of nowhere and rising 20 feet in a matter of minutes, uh, not only is all that happening, but the Antarctic light is is a trickster. It could seem it, it, there were f- fog bows and rainbows and uh, and sun dogs and moon dogs and parhelix circles and all these unbelievable sort of you know almost uh, mythological <laughs> occurrences that got some of the, even the atheists aboard to believe in God, and then um, then there's the fact that you know if on an overcast day what can seem like a, a mountain in the distance uh, is something that you just walk a few feet and you stumble over because uh, it's, it's just, those are, those are the tricks that, uh, that Antarctic light plays. And, and, and then there's the mirages like a Fata Morgana where that can make uh, a distant iceberg uh, look like almost a spaceship hovering over the, uh, over the horizon and, and can invert icebergs or magnify them to the point where, Dujralash and his log, which I was also able to access uh, thanks to his uh, great-grandson, 
wrote uh, that he thought he saw a distant city and, uh, and he thought he saw a lighthouse shining towards him. And that was uh, nothing, nothing but an extremely elaborate mirage that, you know, it's like something out of Tolkien, isn't it? Yeah. Now, I, we won't go into too much depth into, you know, how they or some of them escaped, though, God, an awful lot of good luck seems to have been involved. But, and ingenuity, and ingenuity. And engineering. <laughs> but I'm interested, like, a bit in the aftermath, in these relationships... Because, you know, a lot of the action of the book psychologically is the shifting loyalties of your kind of quartet of leading men. You know, Amundsen gets very, very fed up for good reason. And, you know, do those relationships hold? Do they remain, you know... in what... Partly they were the result, you know, the, these antagonisms were the result of the pressures, b- both psychological and, and, and literal, the pressure, of the, you know, um, of the ice. And yes, there was a, uh, there, there were definitely some, they, they made peace afterwards. But, you know, you mentioned Amundsen, <laughs> he quit the expedition. When he was aboard, they were, they were stuck in the ice, they were stuck with each other, there was nowhere else for him to go. And yet he quit the expedition. And so he's, you know, he, he uh, was incensed that he had, dis- he had discovered that uh, de Jolache had signed a contract with the Royal Belgian Geographic Society in which he promised that should he, both he and the captain, who were both Belgian, should they, should they die, the command of the expedition would go to another Belgian, which means that they would have bypassed Amundsen, who by, by, as first mate, had every expectation to inherit command. Uh, when he discovered this, it, he just blew his top. And he confronted de Jolache and, you know, he was, a, in, Amundsen's an intimidating man uh, and, and will brook no disrespect. Uh, so he, uh, he, he quit. Um, of course, he, he says, I'm no longer the first mate of this expedition. I am just a man among other men trying to survive. And it will do what I can to help my shipmates survive. So they did. He did uh, afterwards receive a medal and accept a medal from King Leopold. And for a while, it seemed like he had he had uh, let bygones be bygones and made peace with the Jolash. But at the end of his life, Amundsen uh, just had he he. Uh, it's it's like. He had, uh, as everybody knows, he had, uh, he reached the South Pole first, he uh, blazed through the Northwest Passage, and it's even quite likely that he was uh, the first man to the the North Pole as well, uh, which he reached by airship uh, in the 20s. But much like uh, Alexander, who when he ran out of lands to conquer, wept, Amundsen ran out of records to to achieve, and he, and he raged. He turned on all of his enemies, he became paranoid, and... Uh, even his uh, his closest allies thought that you know suggested that, that he had gone insane. And at that point, he uh, he wrote an autobiography called "My Life as an Explorer," where he turned on all of his enemies, including de Gerlache, who he blamed. Even though he admired de Gerlache uh, during that expedition, he lambasted him in this autobiography. The one person he never turned against was Frederick Cook. He learned everything from Frederick Cook and always credited him with with saving the expedition and with his remarkably ingenious in- interventions on the ice. And even though Cook would go on to, you know, famously lie about reaching the North Pole, uh, lie about uh, reaching the summit of, of Denali, the tallest mountain in, in North America, uh, even though Cook landed in, in Leavenworth Penitentiary for seven years for running a Ponzi scheme, 
Amundsen was the one person who never abandoned him, and in fact, the only person who visited him in prison. Well, that's the really touching kind of, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of coda, but it's the prequel, and as, as you set it out in the story. Well, I mean, what do you think happened to Cook? I mean, what, what was going on psychologically with him? But, you know, he, he had every entitlement to glory and respect, and yet, you know, he kind of squandered his reputation on fraud. I think part of it comes from his upbringing. He grew up extremely poor in, in Williamsburg. His, his mother worked in a sweatshop. You know, everybody in the family had to hustle for a living. He was the son of, of German immigrants. They lived in, in Williamsburg which was not the, uh, the, the haven of, of hipsterdom that it is now. It was a, a really sort of wretched slum. And um, he uh, had to uh, hustle as, as, you know, and he, he learned how to, he, he built a, a milk delivery empire at the age of, uh, of, of 16 and cornered the Brooklyn market. He put himself through medical school uh, just at the same time, almost never sleeping, and uh, through his whole life, he, uh, his whole youth, rather, he struggled. And then I think at the same, so, so that taught him to, you know, do whatever it takes to get success and, and reach fame. And so um, when he was, when that's, when that instinct was rewarded, when he became kind of a, a semi-celebrity on the lecture circuit, and it just encouraged those, those tendencies to exaggerate and to, uh, you know, to, to bend the truth. Um, and part of it is because of the nature of the explore, exploration business. Uh, as I mentioned, stories are, are the, 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 uh, the main resource of, of exploration. And uh, he had some success writing about the Belgica expedition. He wrote a, a fantastic book called Through the First Antarctic Night. And it, when that came out, he, he became a, a, you know, a, a minor celebrity. He, had, and he made a good amount of money from it. And so he realized that he could make more money writing about exploration than he could as a family doctor. And he realized that he could sell more books if he, you know, kind of uh, twisted the truth. So that combined with his uh, natural personality as a dreamer and, uh, and uh, an outside-the-box thinker, I think that's what led him to, you know... He would say that he's guilty only of optimism, that, that he, he may have believed that he got to the North Pole. He certainly... Be- and uh, in running a Ponzi scheme... He believed that he was, you know, uh, that it would all pay pay off for everybody who bought into it, but again, I think it's it's a product of of his of his youth and his uh, his understanding that he had to hustle to make a living. Well, it, Madhouse at the End of the Earth um, by Julian Sancton is out now. Julian, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.